A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Radio Westeros, Episode 56, The Winds of Winter Primer, Part 3, The Riverlands. Spoilers all books! Hello, and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere, and with me today is Yoke Boy. Yeah, hi! We have another packed episode for you all today, focusing on the winds of winter, specifically what's going on in the Riverlands. First up, we'll be discussing the prologue, what is likely to occur, and through whose eyes might we see the action. And next, we'll have a recap of Jamie's situation in Feast and Dance, followed by a parallel look at Brienne. Then we'll examine how their stories might intertwine in the Winds of Winter following the major cliffhanger at the end of A Dance with Dragons. After that, we'll move on to an intriguing look at Lady Stoneheart. This vengeful soul might well wreak havoc in the upcoming novel, and so we'll put forth our observations and predictions as the fandom wonders if there will be a Red Wedding 2.0. What does this mean exactly? Stay tuned for our thoughts about what could be one of the grimmest events in Winds. And finally, we'll round up all those miscellaneous loose ends in the Riverlands, from Chekhov's Wolfpack to the mysterious Green Men, and from Harrenhal to the Quiet Isle. So, plenty of Riverlands-themed content to keep you all entertained today. We want to thank all of you who have been tuning into our live streams. After some early tech headaches, we think that we've improved a lot, and we look forward to more. Please note the video can be watched live with a social chat room or on YouTube after the stream. And there's a podcast version which comes a bit later but does have improved audio quality. So the choice is yours, folks. Yeah, and we hope that you are enjoying those live streams. We are enjoying creating them for you. And before we begin today, it's time for us to thank our patrons. Radio Westeros is supported by patrons, and our deepest thanks, as always, to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Maltude, Pepper, Whitney, Kelly, Laura, Daniel, John Wargarian, and Sister Winter. Yeah, thanks as always to all of you. And if you're interested in becoming a patron of the show, check out our campaign at patreon.com slash Radio Westeros to see what benefits you could gain by supporting us. And now it's time to get started with part three of our The Winds of Winter Primer. 
The Lord of Riverrun went silently. On the morrow, he would start west. Sir Forley Prester would command his escort, a hundred men, including twenty knights. Best double that. Lord Berwick may try to free Edmure before they reach the Golden Tooth. Jamie did not want to have to capture Tully for a third time. At San Diego Comic-Con in 2014, George dropped a huge tidbit about the prologue for The Winds of Winter. At a Game of Thrones panel, he commented that while Rob Stark's show wife, Talisa, was dead, her book counterpart, Jane Westerling, quote, is still alive and will be seen in the prologue of The Winds of Winter. Because all of his prologue characters to date have met their deaths, fan speculation about Jane's death immediately took on a fever pitch. And not long after, George chose to clarify further in an interview. I didn't say she was the viewpoint character, he explained. I said she was in the prologue. Okay, so let's review what this means and what our thoughts on who the viewpoint character might be are. First, with regard to Jane's presence as a character seen in the chapter, it strikes us that since George seemed quite keen to clarify that Jane would not be the viewpoint character, who readers would expect to die in or as a result of the prologue, that perhaps we can expect her to survive. It's just possible that George has plans for Jane past the Winds of Winter prologue. Since A Storm of Swords, Jane Westling and her family had remained at Riverrun after Rob went to the twins for Edmure's wedding. They were there after the Red Wedding when Lannister forces moved swiftly to besiege the castle. When we last saw her in A Feast for Crows, she was departing Riverrun under guard with her family and Edmure Tully heading for Custerly Rock. While Edmure was expected to be held indefinitely, Jane's family had negotiated a future marriage alliance for her. In Jamie's final A Feast for Crows chapter, we saw his interview with Jane and her mother. Jane is apparently still loyal to and mourning her dead husband's memory, but her ambitious mother is quick to remind Jamie of her agreement with Tywin and demand the promised rewards. For his part, Jamie is disgusted by Lady Sybil, whom he calls a scheming turncloak bitch, but agrees to uphold the terms of the agreement, with a caveat, the marriage would be made only after a period of two years to ensure there would be no doubt about the parentage of any children Jane would bear, at which point she would be married off to a lord or a lord's heir, as promised by Tywin. But in the meantime, she would be held under guard, since, as Jamie sees it, the young wolf's widow is, quote, twice as dangerous as Edmure if she were ever to escape us. And that's saying something, since, as a potential rallying point for the defeated Riverlords, Edmure himself posed plenty of danger to the Iron Throne. He was plainly unrepentant, and only Jamie's threat to send his as-yet-unborn child by Roslyn Frey to him over the walls of Riverrun with a trebuchet persuaded him to arrange the capitulation of the castle to Jamie, who would then turn it over to Emmon Frey, Lord Walder's second son and husband to Tywin's sister, Jenna Lannister. 
So, Jamie chose Sir Forley Prester to escort the captives back to the Westerlands from River Run. Prester had been with Jamie at the Battle of the Golden Tooth and under the walls of River Run in the early days of the War of the Five Kings. When Jamie's defeat and capture at Whispering Wood led to the defeat of the Westermen encircling River Run at the Battle of the Camps, Prester was one of the only Lannister commanders who was able to retreat in good order, saving the lives of nearly 4,000 soldiers. Since that time, he had been given command of a force guarding the pass at the Golden Tooth. Following Rob's death, Prester joined up with Davin Lannister in command of the reformed version of the army that was lost when Davin's father Stafford was defeated and killed by Rob at Oxcross to descend from the hills and begin the second siege of Riveron. When Jamie arrives on the scene in A Feast for Crows, his cousin Davin tells him, we have the castle well encircled. Sir Ryman and the Freys are north of the Tumblestone. South of the Red Fork sits Lord Emmon, with Sir Forley Prester, and with what remains of your old host, plus the river lords who came over to us after the Red Wedding. A sullen lot, I don't mind saying. Good for sulking in their tents, but not much more. Mine own camp is between the rivers, facing the moat and River Run's main gates. We've thrown a boom across the Red Fork, downstream of the castle. Of note, Sir Forley is probably also a cousin of Jamie and Davin's, though perhaps a distant one. He's a kinsman of uncertain, though probably close, relation to the current Lord of Feastfires, Garrison Prester. Garrison was closely related to Marla Prester, the mother of both Joanna and Stafford Lannister. And Jamie seems to hold his cousin Forley in high regard, thinking that he was no man's fool, and later even contemplating him as a potential hand of the king if his uncle Kevin declined to accept the role. So as someone who has Jamie's respect and trust, which was not a claim many of the commanders at Riverrun could make, Forley was a natural selection to lead the group that would be returning to the West. Initially meant to be a group of 100 guards, including 20 knights, after the Blackfish escaped Riverrun on the eve of its surrender, Jamie decided to double that number, worrying that... Lord Berwick's men may try to free Edmure before they reach the Golden Tooth. This in itself is interesting since, as we know, Lord Berwick hadn't exactly aligned himself with either side in the War of the Five Kings, instead choosing to champion the small folk of the Riverlands. Furthermore, by this time, Berwick was finally dead, having passed on his life to the Revenant Catelyn Stark, though the rumor of Mother Merciless, or the Hangwoman, was just beginning to take hold in the region, and after so many resurrections, the truth of Beric's death would probably take some time to be accepted as well. In fact, the way he's spoken of in A Feast for Crows by many characters, it seems like Beric Dondarrion has passed into legend, and of course, legends never truly die. Nonetheless, Beric and his brotherhood clearly remain a concern, and with good reason. 
After Jamie persuaded Edmure to enter Riverrun to convince his uncle Brynden to surrender the castle, Edmure was left briefly alone with Jamie's squires Josmin Peckledown, Garrett Page and Lou Piper, the girl Pia and the bard Tom O'Sevens. Tom, as we know, is a member of the BWB and it's at this point that we assume a conversation was had between the two men, information relayed and perhaps plans made. Because after Edmure entered Riverrun to effect the surrender, there was a period of many hours before the direwolf of Stark was pulled down and the castle gates opened. And sometime after dark, as Edmure would tell Jamie, Brynden Tully slipped under the castle's water gate, the same gate we saw Catelyn arrive through in A Game of Thrones, and swam away under cover of darkness. As with the opportunity for Edmure and Thomas Severns to speak, we assume that Edmure and his uncle also spoke, and that a plan of some sort is afoot. It was at this point that Jamie doubled the guard accompanying Edmure and Jane, and he would double it a second time to 400 men before the party departed. In his final conversation with Forley Prester, Jamie cautioned, We don't know where the blackfish is, but if he can cut Edmure free, he will. Though he had reassured his uncle Emmon, the new lord of Riverrun, that all was well, privately Jamie had no doubt that Brynden Tully would continue to fight, possibly at the head of a band of outlaws, as may have been prefigured by his concern about Lord Beric's men. Forley Prester relayed his plan of march to Jamie. Scouts and outriders will screen our march and will fortify our camps by night. I have picked ten men to stay with Tully day and night, my best longbowmen. If he should ride so much as a foot off the road, they will loose so many shafts at him that his own mother would take him for a goose. Jane, at Jamie's insistence, would also be guarded, though Forley seemed doubtful that Gowan's girl would pose any trouble. Jamie, of course, was absolutely right to take precautions. As of this point in the story, it's been made clear that in addition to the Brotherhood Without Banners and the recently dispersed Tully Garrison, there are also bands of remnants from the Stark army still in the Riverlands, men who survived the attack by Gregor Clegane at the crossing of the Green Fork, possibly even an entire company under the command of Kyle Condon. There have been reports of signal fires in the hills and multiple attacks by the Brotherhood Without Banners upon members of House Frey. And in fact, just after the party left for Casterly Rock, Jamie would learn of another such attack. To his surprise, Edwin Frey, overseeing the packing out of the Frey camp, tells him, My father's blood is on your hands, sir. It turns out that Sir Ryman Frey, dismissed from the siege by Jamie for his drunken and incompetent behaviour, was taken by outlaws two leagues south of Fairmarket and hanged with his entire party, 15 armed men. Walder Rivers tells Jamie, It's almost as if they knew he would be returning to the twins and with a small escort. 
So we've established that there was at least one potential Brotherhood Without Banners spy in the camp outside River Run, the bard Tom O'Sevens. But as he doesn't seem to have gone anywhere, we wonder how news of Ryman's movements were given to the Brotherhood. Based on a few clever references, we think we have a pretty good idea of how this might have occurred. When Sir Ryman was dismissed by Jamie, he was in the company of a camp follower who self-identified as the Queen of Whores. She was seen to be wearing a crown, quote, a circlet of hammered bronze, graven with runes and ringed with small black swords. Yes, so obviously the crown of Rob Stark there. Tom O'Seven's dreams was also present for Ryman's dismissal, and while Ryman was ordered to leave the crown, based on the fact it would next be seen in the hands of none other than Lady Stoneheart, we might assume he did not, and was perhaps still in the company of the woman as well. Could she have been the source of the BWB's information? We find it interesting that, according to Merritt Frey's A Storm of Swords epilogue point of view, Peter Frey was also in the company of a camp follower just before he was hanged by the BWB. While two might be a coincidence or simply indicate a predilection for sex workers on the part of the Freys, Let's fast forward a bit to Jamie's Lone A Dance With Dragons chapter, where we can point out the speed with which the Brotherhood, in the person of Brienne of Tarth, were able to track Jamie to Pennytree after his visit to Raventree Hall. Remember Hildy, the camp follower he met there with Lord Jonas Bracken? The day Jamie met with Lord Jonas and Lord Titus, and Hildy, he departed Raventree Hall and arrived at Pennytree the same evening. Around midnight, Brienne rode into camp looking for him. We think it's less likely to be a coincidence that in three cases, where the Brotherhood is looking for a target and quickly locates them, there turns out to have been a camp follower involved. Okay, so with a more or less established network of spies and secret communications, a significant amount of manpower in the offing, the Blackfish at large, a demonstrated wealth of weapons available by plunder, and the ability for the Smith Gendry to have been forging arms and armour at the inn at the crossroads, we think that something big is about to happen in the Riverlands, and George's comments about seeing Jane Westerling in the prologue seem to support this. Also of extreme interest is that the Blackfish was presumably the mastermind behind the great Stark Tully victory at Oxcross, which involved circumventing the Golden Tooth via a secret path discovered by Grey Wind. As we've said in the past, it's quite possible that the Blackfish means to take command of the Riverrun garrison and set out for the Westerlands to ambush Forley Prester's party and free Admir and Jane, whose safety he was charged with in a storm swords when, upon his departure from Riverrun, King Rob named his great-uncle Warden of the Southern Marches, which specifically involved Queen Jane's protection. In addition, we should mention the Great Riverlands Wolfpack. As we'll be discussing later, George has called it Chekhov's Wolfpack, indicating we can expect some involvement of Tooth and Claw coming up in the story. 
Years ago, Lady Gwyn wrote an extensive essay about the political situation in the Riverlands, and after the release of The World of Ice and Fire, one of our listeners pointed out a couple of newly revealed details. In the section on the Riverlands, Yandor speaks of the wars between the First Men, still allied with the First People of Westeros, the Children of the Forest, and the Andals. Yeah, he mentions, quote, the night in the white wood where supposedly the children of the forest emerged from beneath a hollow hill to send hundreds of wolves against an Andal camp, tearing hundreds of men apart beneath the light of a crescent moon. And then later tells the story of Eric the Kinslayer's defeat of the first men and the children at a place called High Heart. Crowned by a grove of giant weirwoods ancient as any that had been seen in the Seven Kingdoms, High Heart was still the abode of the children and their green seers. When the Andal king, Eric the Kinslayer, surrounded the hill, the children emerged to defend it, calling down clouds of ravens and armies of wolves. Or so the legend tells us. Though Tooth and Claw were not sufficient to bring the defenders victory in this case, we do think that there's a great potential for possible parallels with the current conflict between the Riverlanders and the conquering Lannisters, starting with a group that is known to shelter in a hollow hill and a mentioned huge wolf pack in the area. But could the wolf pack be involved in the action of the prologue? Because we've had three Aya POV chapters on the timeline since Jamie and the Prester party departed Riverrun, and because she has been shown to run with Nymeria in her dreams, but never sees this type of attack, we tend to think this might not be the case, and that the wolves won't have their time until somewhat later in the book. On the other hand, we must remember the unreliable narrator and acknowledge that the wolves might play a role, perhaps even arriving near the end of what we anticipate will be a chaotic chapter filled with blood and vengeance, a theme George loves to tempt us with, and that we expect will play a major role in The Winds of Winter, though we as readers know that vengeance will never work out as hoped, and that it always comes with a human cost. One other thing we should mention is the setting. Why do we assume the prologue will involve action that occurs during the journey westward rather than in the West itself, given that in 2015, George said that we'll see Casterly Rock in the future? Well, that statement was paired with yet another qualifier, not necessarily in Winds, and taken with this earlier statement that Jane will appear in the Winds of Winter prologue, the fact that Jane and all the rest are known to be heading for Casterly Rock, and the thematic consonance of an attack in the Riverlands, as we'll be discussing, our interpretation is that the prologue takes place before the party arrives in the West. In any case, let's say we've established the possibility, or even likelihood, of an ambush of some sort of the Prester Party in the Winds of Winter prologue. We now arrive at the question of who the point-of-view character might be. In the past few years of fan speculation, two leading possibilities have emerged, Forley Prester himself and Sir Ilan Payne, the King's Justice. 
While the idea of a point of view from a character who cannot speak is full of interesting narrative possibilities, we have to point out that Sir Illyn was last seen with Jamie at River Run several days after the Prester Party's departure. Yeah, and add to that that Illyn Payne is the King's Justice, whose duties mainly take place at the Red Keep, and we think it's a reasonably sure bet that he didn't make any move to head west after Sir Forley, since Jamie's intent had been to return to King's Landing once he settled things at Raventree. Though it's uncertain if Illyn made the trip to Raventree with Jamie, we still place the odds of him being present to see any action involving Jane and the Prester Party in the Winds of Winter as pretty slim. Forley Prester, on the other hand, would be a great option. The commander of the group, he's been mentioned numerous times since A Game of Thrones, in keeping with other prologue point of views, like Varamir and Chet, who were not unknown to readers as minor characters. Of course, the other prologues featured Will, Crescent, and Pate, who were all brand new characters and highly effective at that. So the Winds of Winter prologue could certainly be from the viewpoint of someone entirely new, or possibly even some other minor character. One of the Westerlings, for instance, Gawain, Sybil, Rollum, or Elena, or perhaps even Reynald, thought to be lost at the Red Wedding, but who perhaps survived, as we've discussed in the past. Briefly, let's consider the purpose of prologues in A Song of Ice and Fire. In a story told exclusively from character viewpoints, one-off prologue characters offer viewpoints that we can't get anywhere else. From Will's story of what happened to Garrett and Waymar Royce beyond the wall to Pate's insider view of the Citadel, and often provide exposition or background that will remain relevant throughout the upcoming volume. Think of Chet's internal monologue, laying out the plans for a Night's Watch mutiny and Varamir's description of life as a warg, its rules and the concept of second life. Finally, they can serve to introduce the reader to new characters and settings that will remain relevant in their novel. Think Peyton Old Town again, and especially Cresson at Dragonstone with Stannis Davos and Melisandre. Also, while the prologues often set important themes and tones for their novel and provide important narrative hooks to the reader, they also uniformly function as standalone short stories with beginning, middle, and end, with the resolution being the death or imminent death of the viewpoint character. The oft-discussed fate of George's prologue characters being the detail that led to such intense fan speculation back in 2014 when he revealed that Jane would be seen in the Winds of Winter prologue. As we've discussed in the past, and we'll be getting into further in this episode, we think that the Winds of Winter will bring a lot of Riverlands action, from Jamie and Brienne to Lady Stoneheart and a possible Red Wedding 2.0, and more like the Gravedigger at the Quiet Isle, the Wolf Pack, and the Isle of Faces, and plenty of opportunity for the theme of vengeance to be explored we can expect the balance to tip back towards the Tullys and the Starks in winds. 
and a prologue that shows us that happening in a spectacular way would be very fitting. But George has also said we'll see Castley Rock at some point, so entering the winds of winter through the eyes of a character that could provide important background information about the Westerlands, a region we could visit at some point in this volume, does make a lot of sense. Yeah, and so if the viewpoint is to be a previously introduced character, we'd say someone from the West, like Forley Prester, for the military background he could provide, or perhaps Sybil Westerling, the plotter and schemer, for what we could learn about the long reach of Tywin Lannister. But we can't deny the possibility that the viewpoint could be an entirely new character, Prester's soldier number 12, or a random member of the Brotherhood, for instance. In any case, we can expect this chapter to offer a thrilling entree into the Winds of Winter that will also set us up for the rest of the book to come. And speaking of setting up, we're going to transition now to another character we expect to see in the Riverlands early in the Winds of Winter. Up next, everything we know about what was happening with Jamie Lannister when we last saw him and where we think he'll be when we see him next. Somehow he did not think the Maesters were like to confuse him with Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight when they wrote their histories. Still, he felt curiously content. The war was all but won. Dragonstone had fallen, and Storm's End would soon enough, he could not doubt, and Stannis was welcome to the Wall. The Northmen would love him no more than the Stormlords had. If Roose Bolton did not destroy him, winter would. And he had done his own part here at River Run without actually ever taking up arms against the Starks or Tullys. Jamie Lannister had one point of view chapter in A Dance with Dragons, and what happened to him at the end of it is one of the biggest and most discussed cliffhangers from that novel. But before we discuss what happened in that chapter and speculate about where the winds of winter will find him, let's recap what he was up to in A Feast for Crows, because there are quite a few details from his final chapter from that book, which we think will have some bearing on his upcoming arc. In fact, many of the details we discussed in the last segment are taken from Jamie's final A Feast for Crows chapter. Following the departure of the Prester party, we noted that Jamie visits the Freys, Edwin and Walder Rivers, and learns of Ryman's execution by hanging at the hands of a band of outlaws. After expressing his sympathy and ignoring their claim that Ryman's blood was on his hands, Jamie informs them that the Iron Throne requires the prisoner from the Red Wedding to be turned over. Here, yeah, this is in keeping with the promise he will make to the Riverlords that their captives will be ransomed. And while he's keeping promises, Jamie asks the phrase about the whereabouts of Reynold Westerling, as he had promised Lady Sybil he would do. Though Edwin declares, you'll find that one feeding the fish at the bottom of the Green Fork. Walder Rivers gives more detail. He was in the yard when our men came to put the direwolf down. Wayland demanded his sword, and he gave it over meek enough. 
but when the crossbowmen began feathering the wolf, he seized Wayland's axe and cut the monster loose of the nets they'd thrown over him. Wayland says he took a quarrel in his shoulder and another in the gut, but still managed to reach the wall walk and throw himself into the river. Though he left a trail of blood on the water stairs, Edwin is forced to admit that his corpse was not retrieved. His comment, We found a thousand corpses afterward. Once they've spent a few days in the river, they all look much the same, does little to convince the reader that Reynald Westerling is actually dead. In particular, it should be noted that the Freys are well aware of Westerling's sigil, calling him the Knight of the Seashells. This indicates that he was wearing a surcoat when he went into the river. Had they fished him out, even days later after bloat and rot had set in, surely he would have been recognisable by that sign. We think so. And while this isn't definitive in itself, it does leave the door open for Reynold to still be alive in our opinion. And Edwin's comment about corpses looking alike after spending days in the river left another door open for one of Jamie's trademark comebacks, saying, I've heard the same is true of hanged men. He left the phrase to their packing and, no doubt, fuming. The next day, the phrase were gone and Jamie declared his intention to deal with the surrender of Titus Blackwood in person, though not by joining Jonas Bracken's siege. That evening, he trained with Ilan Payne and his pain and repugnance over Cersei's alleged affair with Osmond Kettleblack led to him wondering at length whether he could execute his sworn brother for breaking his vows or whether he should just geld him and send him to the wall, as Jaehaerys had done with Luca Moore Strong. There's a particular irony to Jamie coming back to this accusation at this moment, since we can look at the timeline and see that at more or less the same time, Cersei in King's Landing was being arrested on the forced testimony of Osmond's brother, Osney Kettleblack. Osney confessed that he not only had carnal knowledge of the Queen, but also his role in the death of the previous High Septon, to whom Lancel had confessed his affair with Cersei, and in the plot to frame Marjorie and her cousins. Yeah, and we'll come back to this, of course, in a later episode, but we just love all the ironies inherent in this, and also the meta-nod to the kettle-black confusion that reigns in the fandom. Tyrion and Jaime are not immune, it would seem. Though Cersei actually only slept with Osney, one kettle black is as good, or as bad, as another, it seems. And since Cersei will eventually confess to betting all three of the brothers, because it's, quote, safer to confess to too much than too little, we don't see the specifics making much difference to Jaime. Tyrion had accused Cersei of sleeping with Lancel, Osmond, and Moonboy, for all I know. And Jamie has already confirmed some truth in that directly from Lancel himself. He also knows that Lancel confessed to the High Septon, which he thinks is what marked the man for death. His disillusionment with his sister, well underway as a feast for crows began, is about to be complete. The next day, Dermot of the Rainwood returned from searching for Brynden Tully. He told Jamie about being attacked by a massive wolf pack, quote, hundreds of the bloody beggars, led by a massive she-wolf or possibly a dire wolf. 
Jamie wonders if it's Nymeria, though he doesn't know the name, thinking of her as the one who savaged Joffrey. Nonetheless, he's perceptive enough to make this connection. This is the fifth time the Riverlands wolf pack is mentioned in Jamie's A Feast for Crows chapters. The wolves are growing ever bolder, and surely this is another indicator that in the Winds of Winter, the wolves will feature even more prominently as we'll be discussing later in the episode. So the river lords depart for their homes, having been assured that the Red Wedding captives will be ransomed. Lord Carol Vance tells Jamie that he must go to Raventree himself, something Jamie had already expressed he would do to his cousin Davin. But this statement sounds suspiciously like a version of the come-alone trope, wherein messages arranging a meeting between opposing sides often come with the instruction to come alone and frequently end up with one party being lured into a trap. It's not the last time we'll see this trope in play in Jamie's arc, and certainly isn't even the best example, but there's something worth noting about Lord Vance, the Brotherhood Without Banners, and the trap Jamie will eventually find himself in. In A Storm of Swords, when discussing what to do with Aya, Lord Beric says, Still, we dare not go blindly here. I want to know where the armies are, the wolves and the lions both. Shana will know something, and Lord Vance's maester will know more. Acorn Hall's not far. Lady Smallwood will shelter us for a time, while we send scouts ahead to learn. This passage may be somewhat overlooked because moments later, Arya ran away from the Brotherhood and straight into the arms of Sandor Clegane. We know that the Brotherhood have spies and contacts around the Riverlands. Sharna from the Inn of the Kneeling Man and Lady Smallwood were established as such previously. A Lord's Maester is a pretty high-level contact, though, and for what it's worth... While there are two Lord Vances in the Riverlands, Vance of Wayfarer's Rest is not only closer, they are House Smallwood's liege, so we think it's highly likely that it's Lord Carol Vance's maester that they referred to. And this connection to the Brotherhood could possibly be related to the fact that Carol Vance urges Jamie to venture to Raventree Hall himself, thus putting himself in Brotherhood territory. After the River Lords departed, we're told Jamie released the Tully garrison, quote, stripped of all their arms and armour. Each man was allowed three days' food and the clothing on his back after he swore a solemn oath never to take up arms against Lord Emmon or House Lannister. While Jenna Frey questions the wisdom of this, Jamie is adhering to a vow of his own, as we'll see while trying to ensure that these men are held by similar vows. Unfortunately, since there are plenty of targets in the area that have nothing to do with Lord Emmon at Riverrun or House Lannister, namely numerous other frays, we might tend to agree with Lady Jenna that there was considerable risk of these men joining with the outlaws at large in the Riverlands. And speaking of Lady Jenna and the BWB... After the besiegers all depart Riverrun over a period of seven or eight days, Jamie's left with his own tail, his aunt and uncle, and their household, which includes a garrison of about 200 men, and the bard Thomas Sevens. 
In a brief interaction with Jamie, Tom tells him this castle seems a nice snug place to pass the winter, which is perhaps a hint at the Brotherhood's intentions for the future. At this point, Jamie is feeling content with what he's accomplished. As the war winds down, his own contributions to its ending were a far cry from his contributions to its start, bringing relief to several locations, including a bloodless end to the siege at Riverrun, and staying true to his vows on multiple fronts, including, most importantly... He had done his own part here at Riverrun without actually ever taking up arms against the Starks or Tullys. Yeah, and this is a reference to A Storm of Swords when we first gained Jamie's point of view, where he remembered Catelyn Stark freeing him from the dungeons at Riverrun and commanding him to swear that he would, quote, never again take up arms against Stark nor Tully. We'll be discussing the matter of vows later in the episode, But of note here is that so far, he's stayed true to this one, and assuming he can continue to do so, it says, once he found the Blackfish, he would be free to return to King's Landing where he belonged. But first, Raventree was calling. Yet, on the morning of his departure, he woke to find it was snowing in the Riverlands and that a raven had arrived from King's Landing. This was a letter we saw Cersei dictate to Kyburn from her imprisonment in the previous chapter of A Feast for Crows. It says, Kyburn's words were terse and to the point. Cersei's fevered and fervent. Come at once, she said. Help me. Save me. I need you now as I have never needed you before. I love you. I love you. I love you. Come at once. Now, at this point, Cersei hasn't confessed to too much, but she has been accused of murder, treason, and fornication based on the testimony of Osney Kettleblack. Certainly, Kyburn's terse message must have included those details, which only confirmed things Jaime already suspected or feared about his sister. Kyburn likely also explained the difficulty Cersei was in. Faced with a trial by the faith in a holy court of the seven, Her best option was to demand a trial by battle. Unfortunately, such a course would require a member of the King's Guard to stand for her, and the champion Kyburn and Cersei would prefer to use was not a member of the King's Guard. Of Tommen's King's Guard, both Balon Swan and Aerys Oakheart were in Dawn. Loras Tyrell was gravely wounded, and a Tyrell, Osmond Kettleblack was her accuser's brother and would soon join him in prison, and Boros Blount and Merrin Trant are both, simply put, useless. That left exactly one Kingsguard as an option, and that was Jamie, missing sword hand and all. The detail wherein he was literally the last resort could not have escaped Jamie no more than the details of his sister's crimes. For someone who was very consciously trying to redeem himself, if only on a private level, and who had already been thinking of ways he could have Cersei set aside and winkle Tommen from her clutches and of who might be tapped as a suitable hand, perhaps what happened next is no great surprise. 
Yeah, when Maester Vyman asked if there would be an answer, Jamie replied no, before handing the parchment to his squire and instructing him to put it in the fire. Burning items of importance, especially papers or things that represent one's past, is a common trope that can symbolize letting go of the past and embracing the future. As such, these types of fiery tropes are often ending tropes, meaning they occur at the end of a novel, episode, or character arc. And so this scene comes at the end of Jamie's A Feast for Crows arc, the last sentence of the penultimate chapter of that book. Going into A Dance with Dragons, Jamie seems to have chosen his honour over his sister for the first time in his life. It's a wonderful growth moment for him, built up throughout his arc in A Feast for Crows, in which he, like Brienne, is once again traversing the Riverlands as they did in A Storm of Swords. This time, both are on individual journeys of discovery, searching for something that may prove impossible to find. But of note, their journeys occur in parallel in real time, not just thematically. As Brienne arrives near the crossroads, Jamie leaves Darry for Riverrun. As she fights Rorjan Biter, Jamie marches west. As she recovers, he negotiates. As she endures a trial by Lady Stoneheart, recently returned from Fairmarket, and the execution of Ryman Frey, he prepares to leave Riverrun, bound for Raven Tree Hall. Jamie's lone chapter in A Dance with Dragons begins with a description and brief history of Raventree Hall and the surrounding area. Though nowhere near as well-read as his brother Tyrion, throughout his chapters in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, Jamie shows at least an awareness of history that his sister, by contrast, lacks. As he approaches Raventree, he contemplates what his next move will be once Lord Tytos has bent the knee, In the moment, he's thinking of King's Landing, where his thoughts have been turning repeatedly in his last two chapters. While these thoughts are mostly about changes he hopes to facilitate, he's keenly aware of the problem of Cersei and of the hopelessness of her cause. She's guilty of the charges laid at her door, he's certain, and he would be unable to defend her morally or physically even if he were so inclined. If she was still alive when he returned, he'd have to reckon with her and her crimes, and while he seems to be all about settling unfinished business so that he can return to King's Landing, he doesn't seem to be in a rush to address this particular situation. In fact, his burning of her letter, symbolising as it did a letting go of the past, may have freed him to be fully in the present in the Winds of Winter, While he's still conscious of his duties and thinks about Tommen and of Marcella and Dorne, his thoughts making it plain that he would like to tell them the truth of their parentage, there's a distinct difference in his thought process now from where he was in A Storm of Swords. He thinks of himself, of honor, and of truth, and dismisses Cersei as something to be dealt with later. A slight cognitive dissonance regarding the situation in King's Landing aside, he hasn't forgotten the Blackfish. He's aware that Brynden Tully must be recaptured and has offered his aunt and uncle at Riverrun assurances that he will be. 
He questions Jonas Bracken about him and still has several groups out looking for him, including Sir Dermot of the Rainwood, who had earlier reported back about being attacked by wolves. The bulk of this chapter, though, deals with Jamie negotiating the surrender of Raventree and ending Jonas Bracken's siege. We meet, briefly, the woman Hildy that we mentioned in the last segment, whom we suspect of being a Brotherhood spy, and Jamie's negotiation with Lord Tidos is nearly as brief as his interview with Lord Bracken. Having accomplished the surrender of the last part of Rob Stark's Riverlands Kingdom, Jamie takes his leave of Raventree on the same afternoon that he arrived, now accompanied by one of Lord Tidos's sons, Hoster. And as evening approaches, the group find themselves in Pennytree, about halfway back to Riverrun. Hoster Blackwood has been teaching Jamie some of the history of the Riverlands and the famous Blackwood Bracken feud. We learn that Pennytree has been a royal fief for about a hundred years, or roughly since the first Blackfire Rebellion, in which Blackwood and Bracken found themselves, as usual, upon opposite sides. And Jamie considers asking his new hostage the story behind the penny tree which gives the settlement its name, but opts to keep it mysterious. His conversation with Hoster Blackwood had also touched upon the theme of vengeance, with Hoster citing his father's saying, Old wounds never heal, which is a sentiment we last heard early in A Game of Thrones as Ned was thinking of Tywin's murder of Rhaegar's children and the quarrel that led to between him and Robert. And, interestingly enough, here in the Riverlands, two years in story and nearly five books later, upon hearing that sentiment, Jamie also invokes Tywin and Rhaegar's children. His father's counterpoint to that sentiment, he says, is to never wound a foe you can kill. Dead men don't claim vengeance. When Hoster wonders about the sons, Jamie continues. Not if you kill the sons as well. Ask the Castellies about that if you doubt me. Ask Lord and Lady Tarbeck or the reigns of Castamere. Ask the Prince of Dragonstone. And then it says, For an instant, the deep red clouds that crowned the western hills reminded him of Rhaegar's children, all wrapped up in crimson cloaks. In A Game of Thrones, this idea of old wounds was setting up the conflict that was about to rip through Westeros with its roots in the wounds of the past. Here, the focus is on vengeance and on the sons of vanquished enemies. The reader's gaze is intentionally directed at Rhaegar's children, and in this conversation we see the major themes and action of the Winds of Winter being prefigured. Vengeance and the return of House Targaryen. It's become apparent over the preceding novels that Tywin wasn't as thorough as his philosophy called for in the wake of Robert's victory, and the Winds of Winter will bring us not only Rhaegar's sister, making her way westwards, but also a young man claiming to be Rhaegar's son, invading Westeros at the side of a man who was a personal friend of the dead prince, both intending to take what they see as theirs. And that's not to mention the hidden son that has yet to be revealed. Jon Snow, Rhaegar's son with Lyanna Stark, 
may not know of his parentage yet, but he may yet be in a position to want vengeance on behalf of the family that raised him. Which brings us to Hoster Blackwood's next question. Is that why you killed all the Starks? Jamie is quick to point out that not all the Starks are dead. One of Lord Eddard's daughters has just been wed, he says, though he knows very well that the girl who went north with Roose Bolton was not Arya Stark. And he indicates that the other daughter still lives as well. At this point, he thinks of Brienne, wondering where she is and if she's found Sansa. And almost as if his wondering was a summoning spell, just a few hours and two pages later, a woman rides up to his camp. It says, He posted sentries to see that no one left the confines of the village. He sent out scouts as well to make certain no enemy took them unawares. It was near midnight when two came riding back with a woman they had taken captive. She rode up, bold as you please, my lord, demanding words with you. Jamie was amazed and horrified to see Brienne. She had aged, and her face was still bandaged from the wounds Biter gave her. But touching the hilt of Oathkeeper, she reminded Jamie of her quest. She had found the girl, she tells him, a day's ride away. But, she says, you will need to come alone, elsewise the hound will kill her. We know from Cersei's first A Dance with Dragons chapter, during her imprisonment some weeks later, that Jaime did leave with Brienne and has not been seen since. While his A Dance with Dragons arc encompassed just this one relatively straightforward chapter, his upcoming arc is bound to be anything but simple. In fact, what will happen with Jaime and Brienne is one of the biggest story arcs fans look forward to in The Winds of Winter. But before we explore the possibilities for them, let's review what happened with Brienne at the end of A Feast for Crows that led her to Penny Tree and a reunion with Jamie, including where Lady Stoneheart and the Brotherhood Without Banners fit in. This is an evil dream, she thought, but if she were dreaming, why did it hurt so much? The rain had stopped falling, but all the world was wet. Her cloak felt as heavy as her mail. The ropes that bound her wrists were soaked through, but that only made them tighter. No matter how Brienne turned her hands, she could not slip free. She did not understand who had bound her or why. She tried to ask the shadows, but they did not answer. Perhaps they did not hear her. Perhaps they were not real. Brienne's A Feast for Crows arc deals primarily with her search for Sansa Stark. Wandering the wasteland that is the Riverlands, her story meanders across themes that closely mirror those of T.S. Eliot's masterpiece of postmodern intertextuality, The Wasteland, which begins with themes of disillusionment and despair, then shows personal encounters with images of death, before ending with a scene of judgment and vengeance, much as Brienne's arc will. It's those scenes of death and devastation that truly define Brienne's story arc as she travels the Riverlands, so changed from her last journey through it and Jamie's company. 
Then the war had only begun to touch the place. There were scenes of death, but the conflict of opposing sides was clear, and the despair and rot in the landscape and the human souls who occupied it had not truly set in. Early in their journey from River Run to King's Landing, with Jamie as a prisoner, Brienne stopped to cut down a group of sex workers who had been hung for the crime of laying with lions, with the intention of giving the women a decent burial. The pursuit of Sir Robin Ryger and a contingent of guards from Riverrun interrupted them, but in the scene we were reacquainted with Brienne's sense of honour, and soon after, as she dispatched the pursuers, were introduced to her conviction about the importance of vows and also Jamie's growing respect for her. How different her journey in A Feast for Crows is, as her experiences show her a region that is stocked by despair and descending into bitter vengeance. After weeks traveling in this environment, she doesn't pause to contemplate burying the dead she sees hanging from the trees along the road from salt pans to the crossroads, but hurries on, seeking respite. Interestingly, it turns out that when Jamie snarked at the phrase that hanged men all look alike, as we mentioned in the last segment, he was echoing Brienne's thoughts as she observed those dozens of hanged men on the approach to the inn at the crossroads. Swollen in death, with faces gnawed and rotten, they all look the same. And this is a theme that is struck over and over in the Riverlands arcs. Death is indeed the great equalizer. But while the dead have no allegiance, this erasure of identity stands in contrast to the sigils still borne by the corpses. Does allegiance mean anything in the end, the author seems to be asking? The dead remain dead, and the living, gripped by despair and the desire for vengeance, become something else altogether— Something perhaps best articulated by Thoros of Myr, who tells Brienne, We were king's men, knights and heroes, but some knights are dark and full of terror, my lady. War makes monsters of us all. And later he says to her, Some of my brothers were good men when this began, some were less good, shall we say. Though there are those who say it does not matter how a man begins, but only how he ends. I suppose it is the same for women. And how prescient this statement is in light of what is about to be revealed to Brienne. Following her fight with Rorge and Biter at the Crossroads Inn, Brienne and her companions are taken captive by members of the Brotherhood Without Banners. Lions, as they are identified, are lions no matter the good they do in the world. It is this lack of distinction that will lead Brienne to despair of being able to convince her captors of the innocence of Podrick Payne and Hyle Hunt. But this will come after Brienne's heroic fight with those two monsters from her past. Upon the arrival of Rorge, Biter, and their companions at the inn, she stood forward in defence of the children there and her own companions, knowing that she had, quote, no chance and no choice. The vows of knighthood, an institution closed to her on account of her sex, still bound her to protect the innocent, though she was well aware that in doing so she jeopardised her quest and the fulfilment of her vow to Jamie to find Sansa Stark and keep her safe. 
Yes, as Jamie would no doubt be able to remind her, not all vows can be fulfilled in accord with each other. Conflicting vows are a huge theme in Jamie's arc and is a theme that's about to loom large in Brienne's as well, starting with her stand at the inn, which led to her captivity with the Brotherhood. When she faced the prospect of a trial for a crime she doesn't understand, she asked Thoros why the group spent time and resources in healing her wounds. He says to her, You fought bravely at the inn. If not for you, only corpses might have remained at the inn by the time that Lem and his men got back. That was why Jane dressed your wounds, mayhaps. Whatever else you may have done, you won those wounds honorably in the best of causes. Her final chapter in A Feast for Crows is a mix of fever dream and a waking nightmare. The first half deals with her transport to the Hollow Hill hideaway of the Brotherhood Without Banners. Because of her fevered state, these passages have an almost otherworldly feel, as if she is progressing from one state of being to another, or perhaps journeying to an underworld. The ghosts of her past haunt these dreams irrespective of her feelings for them, or even if they are living or dead. And so, Renly, Dick Crabbe and Vargo Hote pace through her dreams side by side with Podrick, Catelyn Stark, Shagwell and Red Ronnet Connington. Throughout, she pleads for her sword, calls for Jamie, and says Sansa's name. While her captors cannot know the contents of her dreams, they hear her words, and these will come back to haunt her, in a different way, by the end of the chapter. Though she wakes periodically to find Gendry, Jane Heddle, or Lem Lemoncloak standing over her, she continues to lapse back into her fever dreams until, at last, she wakes to find herself in the cave, under the care of an old grey man clad in rags, who turns out to be Thoros of Myr. Thoros has been only mentioned briefly since we last saw him in Aya's POV in A Storm of Swords. He did not accompany the group who captured and hanged Merit Frey in the A Storm of Swords epilogue that revealed Lady Stoneheart to readers. In fact, the last we saw of him, in Aya's point of view, was not in person, but in another dream. This one from the perspective of the wolf Nymeria, as the men of the Brotherhood approach after she pulls the dead Catelyn Stark from the river. The white thing lay face down in the mud, her dead flesh wrinkled and pale, cold blood trickling from her throat. Rise, she thought, rise and eat and run with us. The sound of horses turned her head. Men. They were coming from downwind, so she had not smelled them, but now they were almost here. Men on horses with flapping black and yellow and pink wings and long shiny claws in hand. Some of her younger brothers bared their teeth to defend the food they'd found, but she snapped at them until they scattered. That was the way of the wild. Deer and hares and crows fled before wolves, and wolves fled from men. She abandoned the cold white prize in the mud where she had dragged it, and ran, and felt no shame. In that dream, Arya saw Thoros, Beric, and Lem coming across Catelyn's corpse, and now, in this chapter, 
Thoros will tell Brienne how Catelyn was three days dead, and he refused Harwin's pleas to give her the fiery kiss, saying it had been too long, and how then Beric had chosen to pass the flame to her instead, giving up his own increasingly tenuous hold on life at last, and that Catelyn rose against all of his expectations, quote, She rose. May the Lord of Light protect us. She rose. Before that revelation, however, Brienne has the opportunity for a brief conversation with Thoros. He tells her the extent of her injuries and that she nearly died of fever, probably caused by the bite on her cheek. He warns that she will be disfigured and he also fills her in about what happened at the inn and what has become of her companions. Septon Maribald was allowed to go free, while Podrick and Sir Hyle are also being held to face trial as she would. Brienne is confused by the idea of a trial and wonders why a boy like Podrick would be tried for anything. Unfortunately, Pod's past as Tyrion's squire is a strike against him, while Hyle Hunt is known to be one of Lord Randall Tarley's men. Brienne has gleaned that she herself has been marked for death based upon things that were said to her during the journey to the cave, but she chooses to plead for mercy only for the boy. But, as Gendry had told her, the mysterious woman who was to be in charge of their trial was known by many names, Mother Merciless among them. Thoris responds to her plea. I do not doubt that kindness and mercy and forgiveness can still be found somewhere in these seven kingdoms, but do not look for them here. This is a cave, not a temple. When men must live like rats in the dark beneath the earth, they soon run out of pity. And then Brienne is summoned to Lady Stoneheart's presence. Recently returned from Fairmarket, where Sir Ryman Frey and his party had been ambushed and hanged by a group of outlaws, she is now in possession of Rob's crown, last seen with Sir Ryman's companion, the self-titled Queen of Whores. Entering her presence, Brienne sees a woman cloaked all in grey and feels a shiver of dread. It says, grey was the colour of the Silent Sisters, the handmaidens of the stranger. When Brienne was seized by the Brotherhood, they found two items in her possession that seem very damning. The sword Oathkeeper with its ruby-eyed, lion-headed pommel, which she used to defeat Rorge, and the parchment bearing Tom and Seal saying she is about the king's business, actually meant to protect her as she went about a clandestine search for Sansa Stark that was definitely not commissioned by the king. In addition, her companions, with their connections to the Lannister alliance and the fact that she called out for Jaime in her fevered state, are also strongly against her. And as a close parallel, we can't forget another occasion when a character's words are used against them, when Roose Bolton thrust his sword into Rob's chest at the Red Wedding. The last words Catelyn Stark heard were... Jamie Lannister sends his regards. Though this was a malicious reference to Jamie's flippant farewell to Roos, still nominally Rob's bannerman, as he left Harren Hall, and not at all an indication that Jamie bore any responsibility for the massacre, 
these words will likely prove impossible for Lady Stoneheart to forget. As Thoros told Brienne, there are those who say it does not matter how a man begins, but only how he ends. And Cat's ending, with those words ringing in her ears as she saw what she believed to be her last living child slaughtered by one of his own men, seems likely to lead her revived self only in one vengeful direction. And in fact, when Brienne, still unsuspecting of the true identity of Lady Stoneheart, tried to invoke the oath Jamie swore to Catelyn at Riverrun to explain her possession of the sword, she was cut off by Lem. Before his friends cut her throat for her, that must have been, we know all about the Kingslayer and his oaths. Still, she tried to explain about her quest to find Sansa, though her good intentions are met with laughter and disbelief. The incredibly valuable and obviously Lannister sword, Tommen's writ, and her companions all weighed too heavily against her. Then Lady Stoneheart spoke for the first time, asking the name of her sword. Oathkeeper, replies Brienne, the name chosen by Jamie when he gave her the sword and sent her into the Riverlands to find Sansa. In his mind, his, quote, last chance for honour was fulfilling his vows to Catelyn Stark. But Stoneheart sees things differently. Unwilling to listen to Brienne's pleas and explanations, her anger is palpable as she says words that Brienne cannot understand, but are translated by a young Northman at her side. No, she says. Call it Oathbreaker, she says. It was made for treachery and murder. She names it False Friend, like you. And now comes the horrifying reveal. Brienne again can't understand this charge that is being laid before her until the young Northman asks, Can it be that my lady has forgotten that you once swore her your service? As it says in the passage, there was only one woman that the Maid of Tarth had ever sworn to serve. But... Catelyn Stark died at the Red Wedding. When Stoneheart reveals her face, Brienne recognizes her at last, but finds her heartbreakingly changed. Her hair was dry and brittle, white as bone. Her brow was mottled green and gray, spotted with brown blooms of decay. The flesh of her face clung in ragged strips from her eyes down to her jaw. Some of the rips were crusted with dried blood, but others gaped open to reveal the skull beneath. And it's here that Thoros explains the sequence of events of Beric passing his life to the three days dead Catelyn Stark, and we can hear the horror in his voice as he tells the tale. Though Brienne wonders if she's still in a fevered nightmare, she addresses the revenant Catelyn before her. I never betrayed her. Tell her that. I swear it by the seven. I swear it by my sword. And so Lady Stoneheart offers Brienne a chance to prove herself, to fulfill her vow. Using her sword, Oathkeeper, Brienne can keep her oath by bringing the lady what she wants. As Lem puts it, she wants her son alive or the men who killed him dead. She wants to feed the crows like they did at the Red Wedding, Phrase in Bolton's eye, 
We'll give her those, as many as she likes. All she asks from you is Jamie Lannister. Brienne tries in the next moments to explain that Jamie could not have had any role in the Red Wedding. He was with her. He was changed. He was trying to keep his own vow to Lady Catelyn in sending Brienne to seek Sansa and keep her safe. Little could they know that he was keeping another of his vows at that very moment by ending the siege of Riverrun without ever taking up arms against the defenders, that he had not done so since the moment he left Riverrun all those months ago in Brienne's custody. So Brienne is offered a bitter choice. She must choose between her vows, take the sword and slay the Kingslayer, or be hanged for a betrayer, the sword or the noose, she says. Choose, she says. Choose. Brienne finds herself absolutely unable to choose, her honor, her sense of fairness, compelling her to search for a way to keep all of her vows. And so she refuses the choice, which leads to Stoneheart's simple judgment. Hang them. Once again, Jamie himself could have reminded Brienne about the conflicting nature of vows. Remember back in The Clash of Kings when he told Catelyn, who was scorning him for breaking his knightly vows, so many vows, they make you swear and swear. No matter what you do, you're forsaking one vow or the other. We'll get back to the topic of vows again in our next segment, But just here, we think it's important to note that the vows these characters have made to one another is a topic taking front and center as Brienne's A Feast for Crows arc comes to a close. It's a critical connection and one that will be of the utmost importance early in The Winds of Winter. As it happened, when the noose was around her neck and she could see her companions being hanged as well, including Podrick, whom she had the power to save, it says... Brienne felt the hemp constricting, digging into her skin, jerking her chin upward. Sir Hyle was cursing them eloquently, but not the boy. Podrick never lifted his eyes, not even when his feet were jerked up off the ground. If this is another dream, it's time for me to awaken. If this is real, it is time for me to die. All she could see was Podrick, the noose around his thin neck, his legs twitching. Her mouth opened. Pod was kicking, choking, dying. Brienne sucked the air in desperately, even as the rope was strangling her. Nothing had ever hurt so much. She screamed a word. And that's the last we knew about Brienne until, in Jamie's lone A Dance with Dragon chapter, she arrived in Pennytree, claiming she had found Sansa Stark with the Hound. Clearly the words she screamed in A Feast for Crows had the desired effect of bringing the execution of Brienne and her companions to a halt, and more on that shortly. At Pennytree, she told Jamie, come at once and come alone, else the hound will kill her. We noted another instance of the come alone trope earlier in Jamie's point of view, and here it recurs again, and this time it is almost certainly a trap the cost of saving her companions' lives, according to the demands of Stoneheart, was to be Jamie's life. Brienne is mentioned just one more time in A Dance with Dragons in Cersei's first point of view when Kevin visits her in jail. 
She asks for word of her twin, to whom she had sent that letter pleading for help. He hasn't been seen or heard from, Kevin tells her, since leaving Raventree. On his way back to Riverrun, he left his tail and went off with a woman. We've had no further word of him. The woman may have been the Evenstar's daughter, Lady Brienne. Cersei, in disbelief, remembers Brienne as, quote, a huge, ugly, shambling thing who dressed in man's mail. The conclusion she draws from this information shows how little she truly understands her brother when he isn't simply offering her a mirror to her own self, and also indicates the extent to which Jamie, who was utterly in his sister's thrall when he set out from Riverrun with Brienne in a storm of swords, has evolved. With absolute conviction, Cersei thinks... Jamie would never abandon me for such a creature. My raven never reached him. Elsewise, he would have come. But as we know, Jamie did receive her letter, which he burned, and he did indeed leave with Brienne, seeking a way to find his lost honor, the echo of which he has seen in the earnest and principled maid of Tarth. In her, he saw an opportunity to regain something he had lost long ago, their brief association inspiring in him the knowledge that his future was a tabula rasa, a blank page on which he could literally write whatever he chose. And so, coming up in our next section, we'll discuss the word Brienne screamed, how she happened to arrive in Penny Tree at exactly the right moment to find Jamie, what the winds of winter might have in store for the pair, the meaning of vows, and who owes what to whom, and much, much more. And now at the midway point of the episode, it's time for us to say thank you to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. Thanks so much to Erodo, Aileen, Oxheart, Amber, Hortense of Ashai, B-Word, The Queen Beyond the Wall, Blythe Spirit, Catherine, Chris K, Christian, Marge of the Mage, Dean, Eliana Targaryen, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, John H, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady of the Frostfangs, Lady Silverwing, Infanderis, the Unspeakable Terror, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, Boss, the Sithorian, Sammy, Drew, Maddie, Scotty, Tim, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Neither outlaws nor wolves had troubled them on their way to Raven Tree, so Jamie decided to return by a different route. If the gods were good, 
he might stumble on a blackfish or lure Beric Dondarrion into an unwise attack. At a convention in 2012, George confirmed that the word Brienne said at the end of a feast for crows was sword. Lady Stoneheart had demanded Brienne swear her sword to the Brotherhood for the singular purpose of killing Jamie or face death. Take the sword and slay the Kingslayer or be hanged for a betrayer, Brienne was told. Screaming sword as the noose lifted her off the ground is presumably what saved her life and the lives of her companions, at least for now. We can only speculate that Highland Podrick continue as captives, though, since it seems highly unlikely that the lives that were used to leverage Brienne's corporation would be set free before she fulfills her new vow. We don't know exactly where the cave that Lady Stoneheart's gang is using lies in the landscape of the Riverlands, but it's possible we've seen it before. In A Storm of Swords, Arya and her companions, along with Sander Clegane, are brought to a cave by members of the Brotherhood after a night in Stony Sept. This cave, we think, is in the vicinity of Highheart, which is south of the Red Fork. If the cave Brienne is brought to is the same cave, and she sets out from there to find Jamie at Pennytree, north of River Run and the Red Fork, then we have to assume that there's a robust spy network being used by the Brotherhood. Yeah, we mentioned earlier that there seems to be a possibility that the Brotherhood are using local people, from camp followers to maesters, to pass information. We know that Lord Leicester's maester helped them in the past, and Lord Vance's maester has also been mentioned. Both Leicester and Vance had men at Riverrun while Jamie was there, and either of their maesters could have passed information to the Brotherhood regarding Jamie's next move, especially as we noted, since it was Lord Carol Vance who specifically urged Jamie to deal with Lord Titos in person. And then there's Hildy, Lord Jonas Bracken's mistress, whom we mentioned might be spying for the Brotherhood. If a word from Lord Vance's maester set them in the right direction, then it's just possible that a report from someone like Hildy helped them to zero in on Jamie's specific location. And we say they because we have to assume that Brienne wasn't sent out on this mission alone, even if she appears to be alone when Jamie's sentries encounter her. Yeah, surely she would have handlers or companions along who are there to make sure she does what is expected of her. As for that, it would appear from evaluating the various locations we've seen in the area that a day's ride, which she tells Jamie is the distance they must go to find Sansa, will probably bring them back to the environs of the Hollow Hill. And that, of course, brings us to the topic everyone wants to discuss when Jamie and Brienne and the Winds of Winter are the subject the possibility of a Brotherhood Without Banners trial for Jamie Lannister and how that will play out. In A Feast for Crows, it seems like Jamie is simply marked for death, the result of Roose Bolton invoking his name as he stabbed Rob through the heart. But in A Storm of Swords, 
we saw the Brotherhood giving men accused of wrongdoing trials before exacting justice, including the bloody mummers captured at the burning septry and Sandor Clegane. And it's Sandor Clegane's trial that interests us the most here, since as we see it, there will inevitably be parallels with Jamie in The Winds of Winter. One thing of note before we speculate on what those might be, though, is that even under Lady Stoneheart, the Brotherhood still gives its victims trials of a sort. Merritt Frey was tried by what might be called a kangaroo court, given there was a predetermined outcome. Nonetheless, Lady Stoneheart was called upon to give evidence that he participated in the Red Wedding before he was hanged. And, of course, Brienne and her companions were also given a trial in the cave, one in which the evidence against them appeared to be overwhelming and she wasn't allowed to make a reasonable defense. Nonetheless, she was given the opportunity to avoid the penalty of death that was meted out upon anyone found guilty, and we strongly suspect that she, or Jamie himself, will demand that he is also granted a trial. And so we come back to the Hollow Hill, and the parallels with Sandor's trial. Sandor, like Brienne and her companions, was charged with the crimes of Lannister soldiers. One by one, the victims of the rape of Sherer and the fight at Mummer's Ford, and many more besides, are laid at his door. In the face of his furious denials, Thoros says to him, you serve the Lannisters of Casterly Rock. Sandor's response to this charge is one of the great indictments of knighthood in A Song of Ice and Fire. Once, me and thousands more, is each of us guilty of the crimes of the others? Might be you are knights after all. You lie like knights. Maybe you murder like knights. A knight's a sword with a horse. The rest, the vows and the sacred oils and the ladies' favors, they're silk ribbons tied round the sword. Maybe the sword's prettier with ribbons hanging off it, but it will kill you just as dead. Well, bugger your ribbons and shove your swords up your arses. I'm the same as you. The only difference is I don't lie about what I am. So kill me, but don't call me a murderer while you stand there telling each other that your shit don't stink. You hear me? In keeping with this, we have Thoros philosophizing about monsters, broken men, and justice to Brienne moments before her own trial. The conclusion seems to be that the Brotherhood's trials are anything but fair, and that their quest for justice has been nothing more than a quest for vengeance dressed up in pretty words since very early on. In the case of Sandor, it seems like he might have won free had Arya not been on hand to accuse him of murdering Micah, the butcher's boy. Lacking any direct witnesses to this alleged crime, Beric's conclusion was thus. You stand accused of murder, but no one here knows the truth or falsehood of the charge, so it is not for us to judge you. Only the Lord of Light may do that now. I sentence you to trial by battle. While Lady Stoneheart is not Beric, and Jaime will stand accused of being a Lannister rather than serving them, we think there will be a compelling reason for the Brotherhood to grant Jaime a trial before his execution. 
reasons might be more accurate. And as for what they are, it's a subject that has already been invoked at Brienne's own trial. These reasons, we think, will be rooted in the triangle of vows that exists between Jamie, Brienne, and Catelyn Stark. So many vows, Jamie once told Catelyn Stark, they make you swear and swear. This phrase, we think, will define what happens next for both Jamie and Brienne. Back in A Clash of Kings, having arrived in the Riverlands following their flight from the Stormlands, Brienne swore her sword to Catelyn. It says, The tall girl knelt awkwardly, unsheathed Renly's longsword, and laid it at her feet. Then I am yours, my lady, your liegeman, or whatever you would have me be. I will shield your back and keep your counsel and give my life for yours if need be. I swear it by the old gods and the new. And in return, Catelyn made a vow of her own, apparently the traditional vow of a liege lord to their sworn swords. And I vow that you shall always have a place by my hearth and meat and mead at my table and pledge to ask no service of you that might bring you into dishonour. I swear it by the old gods and the new. Arise. In addition, Kat promised Brienne that she would not keep her from fulfilling her earlier vow to avenge Renly by killing Stannis. Promise me that, that you will not hold me back from Stannis. When the time comes, I will not hold you back. In other words, while Brienne made vows of service to Catelyn Stark, which were leveraged in her trial by Lady Stoneheart to achieve her cooperation, those vows specifically made allowances for the girl to fulfil other possibly competing vows. And Catelyn also specifically promised to ask no service that might bring Brienne into dishonour. So we mentioned a triangle of vows, and those vows between Catelyn and Brienne form the first side of the triangle. Then at the end of A Clash of Kings, Catelyn freed Jaime Lannister from the dungeons of Riverrun, sending him off with Brienne and Cleos Frey in an attempt to win her daughters back from Tyrion in King's Landing. In Jamie's first POV chapter, In a Storm of Swords, he remembers the scene. They'd all done a deal of vowing back in that cell, Jamie most of all. That was Lady Catelyn's price for loosing him. She had laid the point of the big wench's sword against his heart and said, Swear that you will never again take up arms against Stark nor Tully. Swear that you will compel your brother to honour his pledge to return my daughters safe and unharmed. Swear on your honour as a knight, on your honour as a Lannister, on your honour as a sworn brother of the Kingsguard. Swear it by your sister's life and your father's and your sons, by the old gods and the new, and I'll send you back to your sister. Refuse, and I will have your blood. So, the second side of the triangle is the vows that exist between Catelyn and Jamie. Her vow to Jamie, it would seem, was simply to grant him safe return to his family in exchange for what he must promise her to achieve the return of her daughters and never again take up arms against Stark nor Tully. 
At the same time, Brienne also swore to uphold her duty to Catelyn to see Jaime safely to King's Landing so that he would be able to fulfill his promise and to see the girls safely returned to their mother. And as it turns out, both Jamie and Brienne have arguably fulfilled their vows to the best of their ability. They did reach King's Landing, though by the time they arrived, Tyrion was imprisoned for regicide and no longer acting as Hand of the King, and Sansa had flown. Aya, as Kat was beginning to suspect even before releasing Jamie, had been missing for many months, and in fact, by the time of Merrick Frey's trial and execution, the Brotherhood had informed Lady Stoneheart that they had Aya with them until shortly before the Red Wedding, when she vanished with the Hound. Jamie, as is made clear in his A Feast for Crows point of views, has so far refrained from taking up arms against Starks or Tullys, though not without a few well-placed empty threats that people were only too willing to believe because he's a Lannister. He's also attempted to keep his other vow to Catelyn, though he believes her to be dead. And now we come to the last side of the triangle. At the end of A Storm of Swords, in Jamie's final point of view chapter, he summons Brienne and gives her a gift. His father had presented him with a Valyrian steel sword, which Jamie now passed on to Brienne, and he tells her, A sword so fine must bear a name. It would please me if you would call this one Oathkeeper. One more thing. The blade comes with a price. Referencing the oaths both he and Brienne had sworn to Catelyn, he tells her that Cersei has people searching the kingdom for Sansa, ignoring Brienne's protest and assumption that he would choose his family over his honor. He says, "I want you to find Sansa first and get her somewhere safe. How else are the two of us going to make good our stupid vows to your precious dead lady Catelyn?" After further explaining the origins of the sword that he called Oathkeeper, you'll be defending Ned Stark's daughter with Ned Stark's own steel, he tells Brienne that, quote, Sansa Stark is my last chance for honour. Honour is something Brienne understands and takes seriously, and so she seals the triangle with a promise. I will find the girl and keep her safe for her lady mother's sake, and for yours. Then, late in A Feast for Crows, based on the outcome we saw in A Dance with Dragons, Brienne must have made another promise to Lady Stoneheart. But this promise was predicated upon the vows they had previously made to each other and is based upon a lie or series of lies that so far Brienne has been unable to challenge. And so what we suggest is this. Given the precedent of the Brotherhood giving trials to their captives, and the precedent of Catelyn Stark's vow to Brienne not to ask any service of her that would bring her into dishonor, and the fact that Jaime has arguably fulfilled his own vows to the best of his ability, this matter of vows, so many vows, is leading to Jaime being granted a trial in the Winds of Winter. And from a meta perspective, the author has to provide a compelling scenario that allows the character marked for death to escape his fate. 
And because Jamie clearly has unfinished business in King's Landing, we do think he will survive his encounter with Lady Stoneheart. Kurt Vonnegut wrote a famous essay, actually his master's thesis for the anthropology department at the University of Chicago, in which he delineated the shapes of stories. Vonnegut identified eight basic story shapes, including one that he called Man in a Hall. Here's his description of this basic and oft-repeated story structure, taken from a lecture he gave on the subject. Now let me give you a marketing tip. The people who can afford to buy books and magazines and go to the movies don't like to hear about people who are poor or sick, so you start your story up here. You'll see this story over and over again. People love it, and it's not copyrighted. The story is Man in Hole, but the story needn't be about a man or a hole. It's somebody gets into trouble, gets out of it again. It's not accidental that the line ends up higher than where it began. That is encouraging to readers. So the basic idea here is that what is appealing to readers are stories in which a character falls from grace and then recovers, ending up better than where they began. Applied to Jamie Lannister, we can see a story arc going from a high early in A Game of Thrones through a series of challenges. Defeat, captivity, loss of his hand, captivity again, disillusionment with his family and loss of his father to now, finally, captivity again. This final captivity seems like one that will be impossible to escape from, given Lady Stoneheart's single-minded thirst for vengeance. And so the way around that, we believe, will be to utilize the well-established triangle of vows between the primary characters in the scenario. As for what might happen in such a trial, we expect that once again an attempt might be made to convince Stoneheart and her gang that the two have kept faith. Not only will Jamie, Brienne, Heilhunt, and Podrick all tell the same tale, but Jamie might be able to give one key piece of evidence that we think Stoneheart is already seeking to answer. The identity of the girl who was sent north from King's Landing to marry Ramsay Bolton. We think Stoneheart must have her suspicions about this, since Aya is known to have been with the Brotherhood not long before the Red Wedding. And we also think that it's highly likely she will send someone north to seek the truth of the matter, and that this is the explanation for the infamous hooded man Theon meets in Winterfell. If that's the case, given the timeline, the spy's arrival in Winterfell is still many weeks away, and so his journey is possibly prompted by some new information the group gains. For Jamie knows the truth, and even shared it with Brienne in A Storm of Swords. My lord father found some skinny northern girl, more or less the same age, with more or less the same colouring. He dressed her up in white and grey, gave her a silver wolf to pin her cloak, and sent her off to wed Bolton's bastard. And so, in this possible scenario where Jamie has not only stayed true to his vows, but provides valuable intelligence and is thus granted a trial, we wonder if he, like Sandor, will be given the opportunity to prove his innocence at the hazard of his body. In which case, 
having lost his sword hand, while under the care of a representative of Catelyn Stark, no less, would he be able to choose a champion to represent him? In this, a trial by battle represented by a champion, we might see a twisted shadow of both his sister Cersei's and his brother Tyrion's stories. And as for who he'd choose, not only does it seem obvious that he would choose Brienne, given the possibilities at hand, but there's something in the text in A Storm of Swords that might give us a strong hint at this scenario playing out. Following Jamie's flippant remark to Roose Bolton about giving Rob Stark his regards, which we expect will come back to haunt him in the Winds of Winter, he left Harrenhal with Steelshanks Walton and Kyburn bound for King's Landing. On the first night out, while resting his head upon a weirwood stump, he had a very curious dream. Now, this dream undoubtedly has multiple meanings in story for Jamie. In the context of A Storm of Swords, it was the thing that convinced him to return to Harrenhal to retrieve Brienne. His family are in it, and he believes it takes place underground below Casterly Rock. Faced with the prospect of his family leaving him alone in the dark, he pleads for a sword. Give me a sword at least. I gave you a sword, Lord Tywin said. Now months later, Jamie does indeed have a sword that his father gave him, a sword he named Oathkeeper, a sword that Brienne, his possible champion, is carrying while going about the business of keeping oaths. And as it turns out, Brienne was also in his dream. When she first appeared in the dream, she was manacled with heavy chains. When she declared her intention to keep him safe because of the oath she swore, he freed her and found that now she was wielding a sword, the twin to the one he had been given, and both were alight with flame, symbolising in part the debt Brienne will owe to Jamie after he frees her from the bear pit. In the dream, he hears Cersei telling him that the sword's flames will burn as long as he lives. When they die, she says, so must he. Brienne feels the same sense of dread he does and asks, what lives in the darkness? Only doom, he tells her. And if this is to be viewed as a metaphor for his trial by the Brotherhood, certainly his doom will be waiting for him in that dark cave with Lady Stoneheart. This is the part of his dream where he sees Brienne, really sees her, for the first time. By the light of his flaming sword, he thinks, In this light, she could almost be a beauty. In this light, she could almost be a knight. This is the part, no doubt, that makes up his mind that he must return to Harrenhal for her when he wakes up. But in the dream, what happens next is the appearance of six ghosts from his past, five of his sworn brothers accompanied by Prince Rhaegar Targaryen. In terms of the dream, this is Jaime's guilt and self-torture coming to the fore. He had reopened this old wound in the bathhouse at Harrenhal, and that day of travelling from Harrenhal towards King's Landing had awoken more memories from his past. Like Brienne trying to explain herself to the Brotherhood, he tries to explain himself to these ghosts, but, it says, when the flame of his own sword went out, leaving only Brienne's sword alight, quote, 
the ghosts came rushing in. Being confronted by the ghosts of his past, his sworn brothers and Rhaegar accusing him of breaking his vows can be viewed as a metaphor for standing before Stoneheart, where we expect his past will also come back to haunt him in a significant way. And in fact, his family leaving him at the beginning of the dream can also be seen as a metaphor for the situation in which he will find himself in the winds of winter a man alone in the wilderness, stripped of the trappings of power and facing his doom. But critically, we think, in the dream, Brienne was beside him and her blade stayed lit when the ghosts closed in. So we view this as potentially prefiguring her defense of him in the winds of winter. Like her ancestor, Sir Duncan the Tall, who journeyed through similar territory in his travels with Prince Aegon, and who held the same position Jaime does in the main narrative, we think that Brienne's actions will always be those of a true knight, upholding vows and protecting those in need. As to who she might face as the BWB's champion, Lem Lemoncloak is one possibility we've given some thought to. He seems to be a match for her in stature, and given that he now wears the Hound's Helm, his involvement would only add to the parallels with that trial we saw in the Hollow Hill in A Storm of Swords. And as for the outcome, the possibilities are many, but we do think that both Jamie and Brienne will survive. Yeah, we do. Jamie, as we said, plainly has unfinished business with Cersei. And the setup of a triangle of sorts between these three, Jamie, Brienne, and Cersei, can't have been for naught. So far, Brienne and Cersei only occupy small spaces in each other's minds. But Jamie chose his honor, and by extension Brienne, over his sister when he burned her letter, and once again when he left Pennytree with Brienne. Given their history, those are not choices that will pass unnoticed, and we don't think the tension between the siblings will remain unresolved forever either. In addition, we think that the Fates might yet have a bigger role in store for Brienne in Cersei's story. So if things work out the way we think they might, Jamie and Brienne will have one more shared experience to bond them further together. We could see them come full circle in the winds of winter, travelling the Riverlands together on some mission quite similar to the journey they undertook in A Storm of Swords. Should they survive the trial? Will they continue to seek Sansa Stark? Will they perhaps meet a certain gravedigger from the Quiet Isle? Or will they seek out Arya? perhaps travelling north to do so. This would work well with Brienne's oath to bring justice to Stannis Baratheon, or might they have an entirely new quest that keeps them grounded in the Riverlands, perhaps one commissioned by the Brotherhood and aimed at leveraging Jaime's identity during a major operation? Will we see something akin to romance blossoming further between the pair? Whatever happens, as they've been our main Riverlands point of view since the Red Wedding, we must expect that they'll continue to be so until George is able to move other characters into the location. And speaking of which, if Jamie and Brianna are to travel together again, George might have to choose who the principal POV is, a matter of mechanics that he'll be faced with with greater frequency 
as his story progresses and more of his characters begin to occupy the same space. To be clear, we don't think we'll lose either of their viewpoints, just that George will plan carefully which characters show which events, a dilemma he's not faced much since A Game of Thrones. So, coming up in the next two segments, we'll be talking more about the so-called Red Wedding 2.0, who might be involved and how we might see it unfold on page, that wolf pack that everyone keeps mentioning, plus a roundup of some other key Riverland storylines that we think we might see in the Winds of Winter, including when we might get a glimpse of the fabled Isle of Faces. And so first, let's turn our focus upon Lady Stoneheart and the Brotherhood Without Banners. She wants her son alive, or the men who killed him dead. She wants to feed the crows, like they did at the Red Wedding. Frey's and Bolton's eye will give her those as many as she likes. All she asks from you is Jamie Lannister. The horrifying reveal that Catelyn Stark had been brought back to life as the vengeful Lady Stoneheart was made in the Merit Frey epilogue of A Storm of Swords. Throughout A Feast for Crows, the character, alternately called the Hangwoman, Stoneheart and Mother Merciless, is mentioned as a new leader of Beric Dondarrion's Outlaws and the reveal became even more horrifying and personal at the end of A Feast for Crows when she was introduced to Brienne, who had sworn her sword to Catelyn back in A Clash of Kings. As far as Brienne's arc is concerned, the reveal of a nightmarish revenant intent on wreaking vengeance upon those who broke the social contract of guest right explains the presence of chunks of salt she and her companions had observed in the mouths of the men they saw hanging along the road from salt pans to the crossroads. It says, Each man wore a noose around his neck and swung from a length of hempen rope, and each man's mouth was packed with salt. The salt, then, is a gruesome mockery of guest right. When Stoneheart is revealed, Jane Heddle responds to Brienne's shock by saying, Death and guest right. They don't mean so much as they used to, neither one. And so we are introduced to what will surely be two major themes of the Winds of Winter, vengeance and the erosion of social norms. Readers have been left with little doubt that the focus of Lady Stoneheart's story will be the theme of revenge, so much so that discussions on the subject in fan forums often predict a future event they call the Red Wedding 2.0. At the first Red Wedding, celebrating the marriage of Edmure Tully and Rosalind Frey, Catelyn and her son Rob were murdered in cold blood by the Freys, who were operating under the guidance of Tywin Lannister. Perhaps the most shocking aspect of the betrayal and subsequent slaughter of Northerners was that the Freys had nominally offered the protection of guest right to Rob and his army at the wedding, a form of protection that no doubt facilitated peaceful political alliances for many years and is an ingrained cornerstone of Northern culture especially. 
Warder Frey betrayed this aspect of culture when he made the decision to wreak havoc on the Stark contingent, an act of revenge taken after Rob's marriage alliance to a Frey was abandoned when he unexpectedly married Jane Westerling. Walder is a man noted as being easily slighted and apparently thought that the unimaginable punishment of the Red Wedding was a fitting revenge. However, as soon as we see Lady Stoneheart hanging Freys in a storm of swords, we realize that she now also seeks a bloody revenge. When we learn of the northern legend of the Rat Cook, we see that in northern culture, revenge, guest right, and cannibalism are all thematically bound together. The tale of the Rat Cook is related in Brand 4 of A Storm of Swords, around 50 pages after the Red Wedding, and centers around a man who murdered a prince and baked him in a pie with bacon. He then served the pie to the victim's father, the king, who was unknowing and asked for a second helping. The gods cursed the cook, transforming him into a giant white rat condemned to eat his own young forevermore. And the twist in the story, where we learn the lesson is when we discover it wasn't for vengeance that the cook had been punished, nor even for the forced cannibalism, but for the breaking of guest rights. The placement of this tale so soon after the Red Wedding might be ominous news for Walder Frey and his many relatives residing at the Twins. When we think along these lines, there is one possibly pertinent passage from an early Catelyn chapter that stands out to us. In A Game of Thrones, Catelyn meets with Walder to negotiate passing over the bridge at the Twins. Lord Walder is so obstinate that Catelyn thinks that she would gladly have spitted the querulous old man and roasted him over a fire, but she had only till evenfall to open the bridge. And all of us know that George likes to employ foreshadowing in this saga. And if this is in fact foreshadowing, then perhaps the themes of revenge, guest right and cannibalism could be explored further in the Winds of Winter. Could the unflinching Lady Stoneheart, along with her BWB allies, have such a gruesome end in mind for Lord Walder? Fans have highlighted that in A Feast for Crows were alerted that Jamie's cousin Davin Lannister expects to marry a fray. I hope you do not intend to take vows as well, Cos, Jamie said to Davin. The frays are prickly where marriage contracts are concerned. I would hate to disappoint them again. Sir Davin snorted. I'll wed and bed my stoat, never fear. I know what happened to Rob Stark. Such a marriage between Frey and Lannister would be an ideal opportunity for a revenge attack. If there's a wedding at River Run, don't forget that Thomas Evans could act as Stoneheart's inside agent and open the gates. And if the BWB should descend at an opportune moment, All things considered, we wonder if Lady Stoneheart will contrive to roast Lord Walder on a spit and force other Freys to consume him. Unknowing cannibalism is something Wyman Manderley's wedding pies in A Dance with Dragons 
seems to confirm is deemed appropriate northern justice for the breaking of guest right, and this justification traces back to the tale of the rat cook. In the lead-up to this potential Red Wedding 2.0, surely many of us will be fist-pumping at the prospect of some northern revenge and justice, but... We should remember that revenge is not something the author is going to cast in a positive light. And so the spitting of Walder Frey, if it comes to pass, might end up being one of the darkest scenes in the entire saga. By the end, we might be closer to losing our lunch than pumping our righteous fists, and George will have us right where he wants us. Revenge is hardly likely to taste sweet. But before this can all play out, there are a number of chess pieces that would have to be moved into position. We know little of Stoneheart's goals other than her quest to feed the crows with Freys and Boltons. As we mentioned, her desire for Jamie Lannister's life is almost certainly rooted in the last words she heard Roose Bolton utter as he stabbed Rob, and it's possible that she may decide she values Freys and Boltons over Jamie. We know the Brotherhood has hanged several Freys, Peter, Merritt, and Ryman, and Brienne noted that many of the hanged men she saw along the road wore blue and grey, the Frey colours. We also suspect Stoneheart is focused on finding Arya, since the Brotherhood questioned Merritt Frey specifically about Sandor Clegane and the child he was travelling with but it's also mentioned that she had recently travelled into the Neck. At Darry, Merritt's widow Maria tells Jamie about the hunt for the outlaws who hanged her husband. The killers scattered when they left Old Stones. Lord Viperin tracked one band to Fairmarket but lost them there. Black Walder led hounds and hunters into Hagsmire after the others. The peasants denied seeing them, but when questioned sharply, they sang a different song. They spoke of a one-eyed man and another who wore a yellow cloak. And a woman, cloaked and hooded. Lady Maria concluded the tale of Black Walder's pursuit by telling Jamie his hounds picked up their scent again north of Hagsmire. He swears that he was no more than half a day behind them when they vanished into the neck. So the trip to the Neck could have simply been one designed to throw off their pursuers, but there are several reasons why Stoneheart could have specifically wanted to go there, presuming her reasoning is still aligned with things she knew or wanted while living. Her sworn sword, Hal Mollen, was last seen heading north with Ned's bones. It is thought he was trapped in the Neck when the Ironborn seized Moat Kaelin and has remained there. In addition, Rob sent a group under the command of Galbert Glover and Mage Mormont to seek out Howland Reed's assistance just before the Red Wedding. This will be one of the remnants of Rob's army that could be leveraged in the Winds of Winter. The question of purpose is one that seems clear, Vengeance is likely the name of the game, 
But some readers wonder if Rob's will could have been secreted at Hagsmire, where it was signed, and where the Stoneheart gang passed through following Merritt's execution as their pursuers followed them to the borders of the Riverlands and they vanished into the Neck. Could retrieving the will, or at least meeting with people who had knowledge of it, Glover and Mormont, also be part of her agenda? And the will isn't the only emblem of Rob's kingdom Stoneheart might be seeking. The camp follower who was with Ryman Frey just before he was executed by the Brotherhood was seen wearing Rob's crown. If she was a spy, her information could have included the intelligence that Rob's crown was with this lightly guarded party and perhaps played a role in the swiftness of the ambush that led to Sir Ryman's death. All of which is to say that there's some evidence that Stoneheart is capable of a larger picture plan and is not simply a vengeful zombie intent on killing Freys and Boltons. Speaking of which, the withdrawal of Bolton forces to the north and their current quartering at Winterfell is something that will make the stated goal of killing Freys and Boltons somewhat of a challenge. We have to assume for now that this will be a goal deferred until after the Freys have been handled. But if there is indeed a BWB spy at Winterfell, as we hinted in the last segment, then perhaps his mission is not singular. Right, that is to say, if our suggestion is correct and Stoneheart sends one of her men to evaluate the truth of Jamie's claim that Aya Bolton is not Aya Stark, then perhaps that person will also be tasked with gathering intelligence on how the Brotherhood might move on to killing Boltons. For what it's worth, if the BWB spy and the so-called hooded man in Theon's A Ghost in Winterfell chapter are one and the same, our first guess is that it's Harwin. Yeah, Harwin would be a great choice since he's apparently quite close to Stoneheart, is one of the people who has seen the real Arya quite recently, is noted to be an excellent horseman, and is very familiar with both Winterfell and the area around it. Nearly two months pass between Brienne's trial, where he may have been present, and that Theon chapter, so we can't rule him out. But Hal Mullen, mentioned to be in the Neck, where Stoneheart recently visited, is another possibility for similar reasons. The Arya connection and the possible late-breaking information from Jamie regarding the girl at Winterfell do make us favor Harwin, though. And in support of a possible move by the Brotherhood to continue to exact Stoneheart's vengeance by turning to the Boltons, we want to note something George said in an interview about Stoneheart after the publication of A Dance with Dragons. After Catelyn Stark's resurrection, she became Lady Stoneheart, who became a vengeful and merciless character. In the sixth book, I continue to write her. Lady Stoneheart is an important character for the entirety of the series. We have to note that this was an interview with the Chinese edition of Esquire, and so there's a possibility of a muddled translation, and perhaps this is not entirely literal. But we nonetheless think the intent is to indicate that Stoneheart is not going away anytime soon. And so we have to look at the long game possibilities for her. 
Well, in addition to the things we've already suggested, Rob's legacy, Arya's rescue, the death of Boltons, all of which could come to centre on the North, we want to come back to the idea of a Red Wedding 2.0 and the reasons why it might not occur as soon as we might hope or expect. Right. The chess pieces, we said, must be in position. The first of those could well be achieved with the bard Thomas Evans' Inside River Run, while a second could be the events of the prologue, where we think an attempt will be made to free the prisoners en route to Casterly Rock. We've mentioned other pieces as well, the Blackfish and the River Run garrison, the Brotherhood's intelligence and weapons capabilities, and the Red Wedding prisoners soon to be en route from the Twins to King's Landing, per order of the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. In fact, given the time that has passed since Jamie issued that order, we wonder if those prisoners may have already been freed by the BWB. In the epilogue to A Dance with Dragons, we have the opportunity to see a small council meeting from Kevin Lannister's viewpoint. Many pieces of news are considered, but there is no mention made of these valuable prisoners being returned to the Crown, in spite of the fact that Wrath the Sweetling, who was sent to Maidenpool at the same time Jamie insisted the phrase release the prisoners, has now returned safely to the capital. And while the Brotherhood seemed poised to have all their Riverlands pieces in position in fairly short order, the issue of Jamie's possible trial and the fate of Jamie and Brienne is something that will probably take some time to address on page, given the sheer scope of viewpoints and locations that the author is trying to pull together in this novel. It might not be surprising if, in book terms, the Red Wedding 2.0 doesn't occur until very late in the novel, perhaps even in an epilogue. Yeah, we suggest this because of the issue of viewpoint. While we earlier mentioned that Jamie and Brienne are our principal Riverlands POVs, we're not convinced that either of them will be on hand to witness this act of vengeance, mainly because it seems like an event such as this could really disrupt the arcs we're expecting Jamie and Brienne's stories to proceed along. Jamie's arc, and Brienne's for that matter, has been mainly concerned with themes of honor and of keeping vows. Jamie especially is in the business of fulfilling some promises he might have made to himself recently about being his own man and reclaiming a part of himself he thought he had lost long ago. Being a witness to, or involved in, a horrific act of vengeance against members of his own family feels like it would be an unnecessary diversion to where his story is taking him, a reckoning with Cersei and his past. In addition, recall the words Lem said to Brienne when she asked what Stoneheart wanted. She wants to feed the crows, like they did at the Red Wedding. Phrase and Boltons, aye. We'll give her those, as many as she likes. All she asks from you is Jamie Lannister. It seems to us that he's saying they have the plan to wreak vengeance on the phrase under control. All that's required of her is to resolve the matter of Jamie Lannister. And so, should he be found innocent after his trial, 
it's possible their intersection with the Brotherhood will be at an end, in which case we'd have a problem of viewpoint that could be solved by the event taking place in a one-off point of view, such as an epilogue. Such a move would bookend the Winds of Winter with a theme of vengeance, reinforcing what we think will be the novel's main identity, while also resolving a number of themes and arcs in order to provide a tabula rasa for the events of the final volume to take place. So where would this leave Brienne and Jamie? Let's first say that it's still possible that one or both of them does witness this Red Wedding 2.0 or its aftermath. But there are a lot of other loose ends and locations in the Riverlands that we could see them being a part of. We'll almost certainly see the Inn at the Crossroads again. And how about that Gravedigger from the Quiet Isle or the Green Men of the Isle of Faces? What about Harrenhal, nominally in Lannister hands, and almost certain yet to play a role in the greater story? What about the Riverlands Wolfpack? To conclude this episode, we'll be digging into those other Riverlands topics. Before we leave the topic of Stoneheart, though, we want to emphasize that, given the evidence of a big-picture plan and her obvious interest in bringing vengeance to Boltons as well as Frey's, paired with the author indicating that Stoneheart is going to play a major role in the story he's telling, we don't necessarily think her relevance to the story will end with The Winds of Winter and the so-called Red Wedding 2.0. And so, up next comes our final segment, where we'll offer a roundup of those miscellaneous, but no less important, Riverlands locations and characters, and how our Riverlands viewpoint characters might intersect with them. But first, let's pause for this ad from a fellow A Song of Ice and Fire podcast. Take it away, Planetos Podcast. Is this thing, is this thing recording? Is it on? We don't have much time, guys. Hi, everyone. We just escaped Radio Westeros' studio dungeon. And uh, we're, we're planning our escape right now. But we, we must get this message out. We haven't much time. Brett, I don't know who you're talking to. There's no one there. Just hit the play button so we can get out of here. Oh, where, where is it? Oh. oh, oh, okay. Here it goes. Three, two... One, lift off. Somewhere in the far reaches of space is Planetos, a world of wonder and terror, shaped by ice and fire, magic and war, ravaged by wolves and lions, dragons and stags, a world full of countless characters and scheming noble families, all interested, all deserving. Of exploration. Join Planetos Podcast and its hosts Brett, Travis, and Micah as they discuss A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones with a special focus on minor characters and minor houses. Listen to Planetos on a podcasting platform near you and find and follow them on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Planetos Podcast. Guys, hurry up. We got to get out of here. I hear a hinge creaking. Lady Gwyn is coming back. Run, guys. The great pack that prowls along the trident now number in the hundreds. 
Some will tell you that they are demons. They say the pack is led by a monstrous she-wolf, a stalking shadow, grim and gray and huge. They will tell you that she has been known to bring aurochs down all by herself, that no trap nor snare can hold her, that she fears neither steel nor fire, slays any wolf that tries to mount her, and devours no other flesh but man. The principle of Chekhov's gun is often discussed by analysts of A Song of Ice and Fire, and perhaps one of the most hotly anticipated examples is that of the Chekhov's wolf pack, currently roaming the Riverlands. This principle insists that everything in a story is there for a reason, and if an author shows a gun early on, we'd better see it in action later on. George himself has described the wolf pack with similar wording at a Wild Wolf Sanctuary charity event. You know, I don't like to give things away, but you don't hang a giant wolf pack on the wall unless you intend to use it. The origins of the wolf pack date back to early Arya chapters, where she became frightened for the safety of her pet direwolf, Nymeria, after the wolf bit Prince Joffrey's sword arm. Refusing to allow Nymeria to be punished by Cersei, as Sansa's lady ultimately was, Arya and Jory Cassell chased her away for her own safety. Much of this information is relayed in A Clash of Kings, when Arya too is roaming the Riverlands with Yorin, and hears a strange tale of a mysterious she-wolf. I heard the same thing from my cousin, and she's not the sort to lie, an old woman said. She says there's this great pack, hundreds of them, man-killers. The one that leads them is a she-wolf, a bitch from the seventh hell. A she-wolf? Aya sloshed her beer, wondering. Was the god's eye near the trident? She wished she had a map. It had been near the trident that she left Nymeria. She hadn't wanted to, but Jory said they had no choice, that if the wolf came back with them, she'd be killed for biting Joffrey, even though he deserved it. They'd had to shout and scream and throw stones, and it wasn't until a few of Aya's stones struck home that the direwolf had finally stopped following them. She probably wouldn't even know me now, Aya thought, or if she did... She'd hate me. Although Arya becomes increasingly distanced from Nymeria physically, we soon learn that they remain bonded through what we might term wolf dreams, though actually Arya is connected to the wolf through her innate warging abilities. In A Storm of Swords, Nymeria and her pack attack a band of brave companions who are out searching for Arya, and a man called Igo loses an arm before Nymeria, inhabited by Arya, moves in for the kill. Later on, the direwolf pulled Catelyn Stark's body out of the river, protecting her corpse from being scavenged by her packmates. And though she was unable to aid her further, this act did allow for Catelyn's resurrection by Beric's kiss of life. And in Feast, Aya's curious dreams continue. In spite of being half a world away in Bravos, she continues to be the Night Wolf, 
running with her pack and hunting men and beasts alike. Also in A Feast for Crows, in a Brienne chapter, Septon Meribald complains of a large and aggressive wolf pack in the area that is gaining an almost legendary status. He says... Some will tell you that they are demons. They say the pack is led by a monstrous she-wolf, a stalking shadow, grim and grey and huge. They will tell you that she has been known to bring aurochs down all by herself, that no trap nor snare can hold her, that she fears neither steel nor fire, slays any wolf who tries to mount her, and devours no other flesh but man. Similarly, the wolf pack is mentioned numerous times in Jamie's A Feast for Crows arc, including by Sir Danwell Frey, who claims to Jamie that there are more wolves in the Riverlands now than at any other time in living memory, saying, They've lost all fear of men. Packs of them attacked our baggage train on our way down from the twins. Our archers had to feather a dozen before the others fled. And this mention of a baggage train might be of particular interest, given our discussion on the events of the prologue. As we said, it's difficult to say with any certainty, but it is possible that the wolves could make a surprise appearance at some point in that chapter. And let's not forget that Aya's story in The Winds of Winter begins with a wolf dream. George opens the Mercy chapter with... She woke with a gasp, not knowing who she was or where. The smell of blood was heavy in her nostrils. Or was that her nightmare lingering? She had dreamed of wolves again, of running through some dark pine forest with a great pack at her heels, hard on the scent of prey. With no mentor or guidance to speak of thus far, Arya's relationship with Nymeria has been almost a subconscious experience. Does she know she's working Nymeria, or does she think she's merely having vivid dreams? At the present time, Arya has a thirst for revenge, and, as Plagueface puts it, a taste for blood. But with her taking control of a cat during her Faceless Men training, we think it won't be long before Arya's control over Nymeria increases and becomes more conscious. This will give George the ability to show the reader more action in the Riverlands from Arya's point of view without limiting him to characters physically on hand. So what happens when Arya really begins to utilise Nymeria and the entirety of the wolf pack more consciously and for her own ends? Those who have made an enemy of Arya Stark should be afraid, for why would an author give exposition to a savage direwolf and her pack throughout the books if they're never going to be utilised? And so we expect this Chekhov's wolf pack to play an important role in the Riverlands in the upcoming book. It remains to be seen whether Arya will one day be physically reunited with her wolf, but we do believe she will have the opportunity to utilise her talents. Perhaps we would be wise to expect nothing less than a bloodbath. The only question is, whose blood will it be? A very good question. And moving on now, there is another wild card to be found in the Riverlands that one could describe with Chekhov's terminology. 
Near Harrenhal lies a lake called the God's Eye, where a mysterious island called the Isle of Faces sits. This is where the peace pact was signed between the first men and the children of the forest thousands of years ago, and we know that every weirwood on the island had a face carved into it in order to witness the treaty. And it was at this time that the Order of the Green Men was formed, mysterious protectors of some sort who, quote, kept their silent watch. Tales are told of antlered men with green skin, though we should beware of interpreting these stories too literally. Consider that they are described as silent, that they are never seen on the mainland, and that they've been living in seclusion for thousands of years. With the word green in their title, and arising at a time when faces were being carved into trees to keep witness, we wonder if the green men could be a community of ancient greenseers. They reside, after all, in the iris of the god's eye. The green men were mentioned as early as Catelyn I of A Game of Thrones, and indeed, George has admitted that they will one day come to the fore of the story. Whether the green men are ready to come to the fore in the winds of winter is open for debate. It's possibly too early for their introduction, but at the very least, we could learn more about them. Yeah, and we should consider, as with all of these Riverlands threads, the possibility that it is relevant to Jamie's and or Brienne's POVs, that we see some backstory related to the Isle or even that they end up going there. This is not a usual prediction, as those usually centre around Bran and Howland Reed, characters associated with Greensing, but since Jamie and Brienne are, will be, and have been the principal Riverland POVs, Occam's razor dictates we consider it. Yeah, but however it happens, keep an eye out for mentions of these green men in the Winds of Winter, perhaps in our Riverlands point of views, or perhaps related to Bran's story. And don't forget that Howland Reed took a trip to the Isle of Faces before the tourney of Harrenhal, another reason to be excited if or when we see him in person in the pages of the Winds of Winter. And speaking of Harrenhal, here's another place that could have an impact on the future story. Peter Baelish was granted the large and apparently cursed castle after the Blackwater, but as of yet has shown no interest in taking up residence there. We've seen the Mountain and his men commit horrors there until Jamie Lannister attempted to clean out the rot. Jamie installed a group of pious soldiers called the Holy Hundred as caretakers led by Sir Boniface Hasty. With its huge structure and grounds, its curse and its horrors, readers would be remiss to forget about Harrenhal as a setting for future storylines. Well, we've suggested in the past that Harrenhal, noted to be the largest castle in the Seven Kingdoms, even in its state of ruin and decay, could be a site pertinent to the end game. While it's likely too soon for that to be relevant, perhaps the fact that it's currently in the hands of the Crown will be relevant. Perhaps the Riverlanders or the Brotherhood will at some point seek to clear out the Outlanders. Or maybe Jamie and Brienne might seek shelter there, if at some point they're attempting to escape the Brotherhood. 
Whatever happens, Harrenhal is too important a location to be discarded, and we're sure we'll be there again one day. Not too far to the north of the God's Eye and Harrenhal is the iconic Inn at the Crossroads, a crossroads where fateful decisions are made. Just ask Catelyn Stark. Once owned by Masha Heddle, the inn passed to her nephew when Tywin destroyed the village and Masha died on a gibbet. The nephew was also killed and now the inn is occupied by other members of the Heddle family and apparently some of the BWB. In the War of the Five Kings, the area suffered significant damage and it appears that Masha's relatives are now operating the inn as a sort of makeshift orphanage. With strong links to the BWB, the inn remains an important setting and was recently the scene of the horrific showdown between Brienne and Rorge and Biter, in which she bravely defended the young residents before Lem arrived and handed her over to Lady Stoneheart, still seriously wounded from the fight. Since the Inn at the Crossroads is a setting George keeps revisiting and one joined to various fantasy tropes, don't expect this place to drop out of view in the upcoming book, especially with Stoneheart still possibly rounding up those orphans in the attempt to find the daughter she believes to be still alive, Arya. And remember that the Hound's Helm is still doing the rounds around those parts, currently worn by none other than Lem Lemoncloak. And speaking of the Hound, it's commonly accepted that Sandor Clegane is currently living incognito in the guise of a silent gravedigger at the Quiet Isle near Saltpans. This is a mere day or two's journey from the crossroads, and if or when Sandor decides to return to the world, it's just possible that he passes through the crossroads the inn there having been the scene of the fight with his brother's men which led to his supposed death on the road to Saltpans. And if Sander is travelling through the Riverlands again, no matter where he's going, it's possible our Riverlands POVs might encounter him, especially if one or both of them are heading in the same direction. Since we view their arcs as connected, we tend to think Sander might stay put until Arya returns to Westeros, but given his proximity to where Jamie and Brienne are, and we expect will be, it certainly wouldn't be out of the blue if they should cross paths again. With so many locations and story threads, and its relevance to what we expect the theme of the novel will be, we think the Riverlands in The Winds of Winter is going to be a major setting and that its viewpoint characters will be very busy showing us readers everything that's happening there. While there's a possibility that other viewpoints move into the region, Aya returning from Bravos, for instance, for the time being, that task will be undertaken by Jamie and Brienne, who we expect to be together for at least the first part of the book. And what this means is that, from the perspective of total chapters, 
We expect that these two may have more individual chapters than POVs who are in areas where there is a greater pool of viewpoint characters to choose from. Like Cersei, our lone point of view in King's Landing, which will be the subject of our next episode, they'll have to work overtime to keep the reader informed of the action in their region. Fans of both Brienne and Jamie, including us, are looking forward to seeing their story unfold and having many of their questions answered in The Winds of Winter. Thanks so much for joining us for this installment of our Winds of Winter Primer. We'll be back soon with Part 4, in which we'll be visiting King's Landing and the Reach for a look at what's going to be happening in those locations. And don't forget to catch our weekly live streams, where we'll discuss a lot more about the characters in each episode with guests. And speaking of guests, thanks so much to the crew from Planetos Podcast for the ad we used in this episode. If you haven't checked them out, find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your podcasts. And now, as always, it's time to pay credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for giving us such a wealth of characters to talk about, and thanks to Kevin McLeod and Kai Angle for allowing us to use their music in our production. And we'll end today, as usual, with sincere thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. Thanks to the following amazing people. AJ, Aegon VI, Alex, Amanda, Oakenfist, Nessie the Questing Beast, Arion, Biloba, Brian, Camille, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Christine, Maddie and Jessica, Chris, Clarissa, Clay, Convenience or Death, Sir Archibald Cadogan, Crimson Kate, Sin Bobby Joe, Dan the Good, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Direwolf, Dutch Defender of the Berm, Eric, Emily of the Eerie, Ezra, Felix, Eric, Jeffrey, Greg, History of Westeros, Aiden, Ingveld, Eowyn Longbeard, The Well-Read, Wine Gobbler from Ultima Thule, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Jamie the Joint Slayer, Brendan Beefish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan from Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, Vesivus, Joseph, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Sonarion, the White Storm, Judson, Catherine, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Kevin, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of What, Knight of the Laughing Tree, Liam, Monaro Geek TV, and Maria. And we have a cohort of Matthews, Matt A, Matt C, Matt L the first, and Matt L the second. Guys, if any of you would like a brand new customized shout out name, just let us know. And thanks as well to Lady Beatrix of House Grey, Melinda, Mary, Michael M, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Rachel, Richard, Ryan, Sam, Scott, Sebastian, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift, Sherry, Sophia, Cern, Spend Trails, That Shiny Bastard, Steve, Tanner, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Hema Helmet, the Sellsword Sentinel, Virginie, Quarren Halfhand, Woodside for Life, Yvonne, and Zainab. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, and comment on our content there. Or find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or Spotify. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, email, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. 
Bye for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.